Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week I'm reviewing the 2001 adaptation of Stephen King's 1990 novella, Low Men in Yellow Coats, known more famously as the Anthony Hopkins starring film Hearts in Atlantis. Now, I don't have much memory of this movie. I remember seeing it. I couldn't tell you when. But I remember seeing it, and I remember thinking, eh, it, it, it was. I mean, it just, it looked, it looked nice, but I don't remember it having any substance. So this was one that I was actually very interested in revisiting because I didn't have much of a feeling one way or another. I remember being, being, being disappointed, but I, I just, I wasn't sure if I, I, I personally wasn't in the right place, the right uh, state of being, if I wasn't paying attention when I was watching it, if I just, if my interests weren't lining up with what the director was giving me. I, I don't know. I didn't know. I didn't know how I felt about the movie. So it was very interesting for me to revisit this. So this was uh, one of the, the the reviews that I was really, really looking forward to, to getting to. But before I get into the review itself, I just want to share a listener email. And this unnamed listener writes... Hi, I just want to say I really enjoy your podcast and will be leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Just listen to a bunch of episodes, including the one on Night Shift. Sorry about the overly long analysis which follows, but this story stands out among all of King's work to me. When I read this at about the age of 11, it didn't feel right for months, and afterward, my closet door had to be closed at all times. I can't think of any book, film, or TV show that ever frightened me to even 1% of the boogeyman before or since, and I'm not really sure why either. I reread it a few times over the years, but it was only when I listened to it on audiobook that I picked out a few lines that really shone a light on what I believe to be the true meaning of the story. I think there are enough clues to conclude that Billings is nuts, possibly schizophrenic, and killed the children himself. The boogeyman is a paranoid delusion. As you put it in the podcast, Billings is unlikable. His views on women, black people, Asians, children, homosexuals, he's basically a bigot. He discusses at times when he felt like smacking his wife because she deserved it. He mentions in passing about how he got so fed up of his baby and wife crying, he felt like throwing them both out of a window. I can't remember the exact wording, but obvious to most people, that would be considered a figure of speech. In my opinion, it's one of many subtle clues. His backstory is one of a man forced into marriage by an unplanned pregnancy. He said he had to sacrifice his studies to do so. So immediately we know he's a man whose bright future is sabotaged by unwanted children with a woman he has no real interest in. The second and third children were also unplanned, and he believes that his wife deliberately didn't use birth control in order to tie him down. More resentment toward the wife and future child. Other points. He tells of how he would hit his child if he didn't stop at bedtime. Clearly, he's an abusive man already. Billings tells of his fears of Molly coddling the child, his fear of the kid growing up bad and knocking up some girl, mirroring his own life. He tells a story about how his mother warned him of the sea, and now to this day he is terrified to go into the water. Why include these details in the story? Is he hinting something about the nature of this man? There seems to be a paranoia about his children not growing up to his satisfaction. Can you imagine your son, a sissy, and a fear of them repeating his own mistakes? Maybe a fear that could be allayed by them not growing up at all. When they're that little, you don't get too attached to them. 
This shows fear of attachment, another example of callousness, and another suggestion that he dispatches them young for a reason. He has no respect for his wife, feeling that she slept with him so easily. She was not strict enough with the children. He talks with disgust how pleased she was with the third pregnancy. Perhaps killing the children was the best way to hurt her. One particular line seems way too obvious not to be deliberate. Christ, kids drive you crazy sometimes. You could kill them. The third child is a little different. He is happy. He loves the baby who resembles him. But again, he suspects Rita of deliberately tampering with her birth control. They moved and then began asking his wife if she has any fears. She says no, but fear starts to creep into his psyche nevertheless. First, he says the house feels different. His wife suggests stress at work, but his paranoia grows. He starts to hear noises and can't wait to get out of the house. This sounds like paranoid schizophrenia. There was a remission of sorts, a spell of time that seemed to be too good to be true, but then all of his old fears began to creep back in. It's not until he sees muddy stains in the house that there is any evidence of the boogeyman again. But is this real? Did he make the mess himself? Did he imagine it? Accidental, like the others, but Rita knew. Rita finally knew. Knew, perhaps, that he was responsible for the deaths? Certainly, she had little cause to believe a monster was responsible, having never seen the boogeyman or ever any evidence of it. The other explanation? She finally knew that Lester Billings had killed his own children is far more logical. In fact, the more I go over it, the more clues there seems to be. But the rest is supposition. Is the boogeyman his alternate personality? The side of him his children instinctively fear? Sure, on the face of it, the story seems like a simple monster story, but there's another layer underneath. It seems like King wrote Billings' character in a way to make him both very unlikable and apt to blurt out something incriminating things, which I can't believe is just a coincidence. Anyway, thanks for reading. Um, an unnamed reader, thank you for writing in. Uh, yeah, so those of you who are listening right now, this is in response to my review of Night Shift, and I was kind of dismissive of, of the Boogeyman short story. Uh, kind of using it as a, as a punching bag um, without really taking it too seriously. So this this email is actually the second email, I believe, that I've received from a listener who is um, pointing out the, the, the truth of the story. And so kind of picking up my slack for not doing my job. Uh, but this is, this is why I love the this particular podcast is because I, you know, I mean, I'm not the end-all be-all, guys. And so I want more... I want more emails like this where you're you're able to share your thoughts and everything that you wrote. I mean, that's perfect. That's perfect. I mean, it makes so much sense. I mean, and then in just in terms of making an argument, I just I'm I'm really in awe of of how well you argued your 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 thoughts and provided evidence. It was great. Just awesome job, everyone. Um, just make sure if you haven't done so already, you know, and you want to share your thoughts on Stephen King or your favorite story or disagree with me, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And if you have not done so already, head on over to iTunes and write a review and a subscription, which would really help out the Stephen King cast and get its presence out there. Um, I'd love to hear from you guys. All right. So like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this is all about Hearts in Atlantis, the Anthony Hopkins starring adaptation of the short story novella uh, Low Men in Yellow Coats. So you know the deal. What I'm going to do right now, I'm going to get into the Wikipedia summary so that I will have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. 
Hearts in Atlantis tells the story of Robert Bobby Garfield, a middle-aged man recollecting his past, in particular the summer when he was 11 years old. During that summer, he and his two friends, Carol Gerber and John Sully Sullivan, experienced many things together, the most mysterious of which was meeting an older gentleman named Ted Brodigan. Bobby lives with his single mother, the self-centered Liz, who takes Ed Brodigan as a boarder. Ted takes the lonely Bobby under his wing while his mother is busy with her job, including entertaining her boss as a way of paying off debt supposedly left by Bobby's late father. The two form a paternal father-son bond, and it slowly becomes evident that Ted has some psychic and telekinetic powers. These same powers are the reason that Brodigan has come to this sleepy town. In due course, Ted entrusts Bobby with the knowledge that he has escaped the grasp of the low men, strange people who would stop at nothing to get him back in their control. After reading Bobby's mind and realizing that the boy dreams of owning a bicycle, Ted kindly offers Bobby $1 a week in exchange for his reading a newspaper out loud. Bobby quickly twigs... Twigs? Bobby quickly twigs? that Ted has some other purpose in mind. I'm not reading that wrong. That's straight from Wikipedia. Bobby quickly twigs that Ned has some other purpose in mind. Mysteriously, Ted asks Bobby to keep an eye on the neighborhood for looking for any signs of the low men, like announcements about missing pets. Bobby sees one, but doesn't tell Ted, afraid to lose his new friend. Bobby, Carol, and John have frequent conflicts with the local town bully, Harry Doolin whom Ted is able to scare away by looking into his mind and finding out that his violence is used to cover up the fact that he is secretly a cross-dresser. However, at one point, Harry hurts Carol, and when Ted manipulates her dislocated shoulder into place, Liz arrives after being raped by her boss and mistakenly believes that Ted is a child molester. She is confronted by Ted's ability to tell her the truth about what she has been through and how her behavior is affecting her relationship with her son, providing another reason that Ted must leave. That and the low men are closing in on him. Ted is eventually captured with the help of a tip from Liz. At some form of closure, Ted yells to Bobby as he's being driven away that he wouldn't have missed a moment not for all the world. And later, Bobby mirrors the same feelings. Bobby is later confronted by Harry, but Bobby grabs the latter's baseball bat and beats him with it. Liz later finds a new job in Boston and moves the family there. Before he leaves, Bobby and Carol say their goodbyes and share a final kiss. At the end of the film, a grown-up Bobby who has traveled back to attend a funeral of his childhood friend, John Sully Sullivan, meets a young woman named Molly who turns out to be Carol's daughter. Bobby produces a picture of young Carol, who died in recent years, and gives it to Molly to keep. William Goldman wrote it. <laughs> Sorry, I just did not expect the that uh, that humdinger of an ending there. Anyway, uh, analysis. <clears throat> the Castle Rock Lighthouse throws its beacon upon the waters and gets us ready for this Stephen King movie. We immediately are introduced to David Morse, making his third appearance in a Stephen King novel, the first being The Langoliers and the second being The Green Mile. He's no stranger to Stephen King as he is also an audiobook narrator. David, playing older Bobby, gets a package in the mail which includes a baseball glove, a note, and a newspaper clipping. It invokes the beginning of Stand By Me, with Richard Dreyfuss looking at a newspaper clipping that kicks off the flashback. Bobby attends the funeral of John Sullivan, and at the service, Bobby learns that he's the last remaining member of a trio that made up his friendship. David Morris does so much with so little, and it's unfortunate this movie isn't better. 
so he could have more recognition because his hangdog face absolutely crumbles when he's told that Carol Gerber is dead. When he takes a drive to his old neighborhood, he sees that it's completely decayed. He breaks into the shanty that was once his home, and the flashback begins. It's the 1960s. Young Anton Yelchin plays a curly-haired Bobby Garfield. His mother, played by Hope Davis, gives him what she can, a library card and some mother's guilt of the life that she's been left behind from his father. Immediately after, we are given the scoop about his absentee father. His real birthday present arrives on the stoop. Anthony Hopkins, his new father figure, Ted Brodigan. We then meet Carol Gerber, the character we'd just learned that had died. I would have preferred that her mem- introduction was more memorable. I think it should have been built up to accommodate a character that is meant to mean something to our main character. It would have gone a long way in placing us in Bobby's shoes. We then get the tried and true method of establishing the past, music of that particular era. In this case, it's Chubby Checker's The Twist, one of history's only songs to have a sequel. Anyway, the song plays over our meeting of Sully John, another character who is dead, whose introduction, similarly, is lackluster. He's dressed like River Phoenix from Stand By Me, and this connotation isn't going to fool us into liking him automatically. The filmmakers are going to have to work for that. Later, Bobby, sporting a bow tie, is stood up by his mom, who has to stay late. The director wisely adds a sinister edge to this, providing an insidious flavor that makes the story that much sadder. Though he stood up by his mother, he spends time with his surrogate father, Ted. It's a nice little scene on the porch, talking about the importance of books and time without it ever edging into melodramatic territory. It ends with a whimsical beat, when Ted tells Bobby he might get that bike. Bobby, having never uttered this desire, is surprised to hear it. Ted covers by comically leaning out of the door through which he'd just entered and says that every boy wants a bike. Which cuts the platter's only you, while Bobby watches the bike spin in a shop window. Now, it's a nice touch to incorporate the platters as heavenly shades of night are falling. I'm sorry, that's not the title. As Twilight Time um, played such a large part of King's book, uh, Hearts in Atlantis. Ted helps out Bobby by hiring him to read for an hour a day and asks him to keep his eyes open for low men. The request is so matter-of-fact... Um, if you phased out, you might miss it. They then talk about it, Ted describing the low men. The description is neat if you pretend that the low men are the Cantoy from the Dark Tower series, as they are in the short story, Low Men in Yellow Coats. The description fits the low men a lot better if they are of supernatural origin. In the movie, they're not. They're just G-men. So the descriptions don't add up. Um, but it is a fun description, nevertheless. Bobby agrees to keep a lookout, and when Bobby explains to Mom that he'd been reading to Mr. Brodigan, Mom has some concerns. It shows that she might not be the mom that Bobby wants, but it also shows that she isn't entirely awful. She has a motherly instinct, and she loves her son, and she's doing what she can to keep afloat. Sometimes what she has to do um, isn't what she would want. She later asks Bobby if Ted is doing anything inappropriate, so it's clear they want to demonstrate that she is a caring, loving mother. The the director does a great job at showing us that time is passing, not through a montage or forced exposition, but simply when Carol and Mrs. Gerber walk by and Carol and Ted exchange familiar hellos to each other. It shows that Ted has been there for a while at this point. We then get another soundtrack-heightened having fun summer sequence. Unfortunately, I don't know Carol or Sully John as characters to care about them having fun. 
or how much they mean to Bobby because they aren't characters at all. So here's the problem of the movie, and I probably should have talked about this a little bit up front. This movie suffers from a major identity crisis. It doesn't know what it wants to be. You know, in the novel, King is able to balance the the major themes of exploring the the earliest incarnation of the baby boomers when the baby boomers were still children and what that meant from a thematic standpoint about his generation. So he was able to balance that with the story of young love, of the end of childhood and the beginning of adulthood, of friendship, of absentee fathers, of a dark and dangerous adult world. He was able to do all of that in his novella. The director, whose name I don't know off the top of my head and I don't have it in my notes, um, or William Goldman, and I'll get more about William Goldman in my review of uh, the Dreamcatcher movie, but William Goldman or the director don't know how to balance this. This movie is just a a sloppy um, quilt of better Stephen King movies, unfortunately, including actors. You know, I mean, David Morris is from better Stephen King movies, The Shawshank Redemption, um, the the opening uh, narrative with him in the present. Like I said, it's, it's just very much stand by me. It doesn't know what its thesis is here, whether it is the... The, the 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 exploration of a friendship um, as that friendship heads into the end of childhood or whether or not it is about a father and son or a mother and son. And it tries to be all of them, but it doesn't have a at any point a center. And because of that, it just it loses any sense of cohesion. And so these little montages that we get don't do anything because at no point do we ever get to know Carol, and especially Sully John. He's nothing. I don't even know if he has any words in this in this movie. So this, unfortunately, yes, I'm glad that we get some some nice music to to set the the time period, and we get to see kids romping and, and having a ball. Wonderful, but it doesn't do anything for the overall story that that's trying to be told here. So then Bobby and Ted have a conversation about football. Ted and Bobby's dad linked together by having attended the same game. It further establishes that Ted is now the father figure. And it seems like this, for everything that I just said about this movie not working, it seems like this that I wish were in more movies. This doesn't really add to anything. It doesn't really do much. There is a little bit of a payoff later on, and there doesn't even need to be. But here, it really is just characters talking to each other. And with this specific scene... It's a great scene for Anthony Hopkins because it allows Anthony Hopkins to be Anthony Hopkins. He's able to sell this story and place us there at this game. You know, it's wistful and it's imaginative and it's descriptive and it's powerful and there's it's a very, very quiet scene, but there's so much emotion to it. And what's great about this particular scene is how Ted hooks Bobby by filtering it through the perspective of his father. Bobby then realizes that if he does spot the low men, it means that Ted will have to leave. This scene was everything. This was a great and wonderful scene. And for all of the faults that I have with this movie, the fact that this scene is included shows that there was at least an attempt to make it more than it wound up being. Bobby's mom then gets a phone call, which causes her to break down into tears which she tries to hide from Bobby. Bobby soon learns that she'll have to go to work on a Saturday. Bobby and Carol then frolic through the woods and talk about the upcoming fair. As they head through the woods, we see the shadows of low men exploring a tunnel. 
Soon after, Bobby finds Ted in a dreamlike state. We then spend some more time with the kids. So you know what that means? Another time period song. So again, I love the song selections, but it's taking the place of character building. We aren't learning anything about these characters. The only thing that we learn about is Bobby, who we learn has absorbed some of Ted's abilities when he continues to beat Alan Tudyk's huckster card player. But the other characters don't learn anything because of these little montages that we get. So Bobby and Carol then have their first kiss on the Ferris wheel. Kid actors, guys. Kid actors. Now, unless you get the right ones, watching them try to convey heavy dialogue is painful. This scene is brutal. You know, it's a sweet little moment in the in the novella, and this is just heavy-handed and clunky, and it's just one of those you just you kind of groan. It's like a um, I don't know, like a like a middle school or elementary school talent show where the kids are just kind of bumbling around on stage. Um, without much talent, uh, it's the same thing here. It's or you know, like American Idol, when you you get that one person that's auditioning that clearly cannot sing, and you just wonder why there weren't people in their lives to ha- to tell them that they should never audition for this. It's the same thing. It's just it's bad. It's really bad. Anyway, uh, later the three kids and Ted hang out on the porch in a nice little scene. And as Bobby and Sully dicker over the baseball glove, Ted speaks to Carol about the magic of being young. It's great to see Anthony Hopkins deliver these lines, and he sells the emotion. But they just fall flat, because he might as well just be speaking into the air. Because what's the point? I mean, it, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't mean anything. Hope Davis then tells Bobby that she'll be going away for the weekend for a seminar and ropes Ted into taking care of Bobby. Bobby and Carol are then bullied by the neighborhood jerks. And there to save the day is Ted, who appears out of nowhere, who can see right through them. And Hopkins is so cool in this scene. He completely dismantles the bully with his quiet strength. Unfortunately, it's a one-sided scene. (laughs) Because the bully has zero reaction to the fact that he's been outed as a homophobic, self-loathing gay adolescent. He just stands there. You know, it, it could have been something, and... Hopkins delivers, but again, kid actors, guys, kid actors. Soon after, the low men show up, but not Ted's low men, but Liz's low men. Bobby doesn't have the life experience to understand exactly what's going on, but he definitely understands that their intentions are insidious. Ted then takes Bobby to a dive joint in order to place some bets. This allows Bobby to get to know his father just a little bit more through a conversation with a bartender who remembers Bobby Sr. On their way out, they encounter the low men in a scene which conveys zero danger. Zero. Ted has to tell us that the low men are coming. And we should know that the low men are coming. Okay? I have mentioned this before on the podcast. And it's just one of those very basic storytelling commands that you need to show, not tell. So if you can't convey that the low men are are coming and you can't convey that there's danger along with it, then telling us is not going to do the job for you. So when Ted has to really spell out exactly what's going on, it comes with zero suspense, zero anything. It just falls flat. And then we get the scene which um, confirms our worst fears about 
what Liz is forced to endure. Uh, she's cut off during a phone call with Bobby and raped by her boss, and it's very, very uncomfortable. Bobby then discovers in the newspaper that, that Ted is a psychic on the lam from J. Edgar Hoover. He and Ted discuss it and how much of a burden it is for Ted. As Bobby runs through town tearing down the missing animal pictures, there's a brutal montage of Liz's rape and the bully's attack on Carol. And it's tough to watch. Um, it really is for so many reasons. You know, especially the acting between the kids when Bobby finds her in the woods. Again, kid actors. Regardless, Bobby demonstrates strength by carrying Carol on his back to help. Bobby finds the strength from remembering Ted's retelling of the famous football game. So like I said earlier, it does come back into play. It didn't have to. I mean, you don't need Ted's narration at this point. Um, we could have just seen Bobby being being strong. Anyway, Liz returns at really the, the worst possible time, sees an injured Carol and blames Ted. Ted then becomes the stand-in for every man that's ever hurt her and is forced out of the house. Later that night, Bobby spots his mom informing the low men about Ted's whereabouts. Bobby, having no choice but to save his friend, sneaks out to warn him. But it's too late. Bobby is nabbed by the low men and whisked away. Ted and Bobby share a goodbye through a car window, Ted remaining as positive as possible. Bobby runs home and confronts his mother about it. Bobby then gets into a fight with the bully and puts him in his place. Later, Bobby and Liz reconcile. Bobby tells Carol he loves her, and that's it for them. Flat, just flat, devoid of any emotion. Bobby and Liz then head off to start their new life in Boston. Then, David Morse, in the present, back on the porch he'd spent with Ted, then interacts with Carol's daughter. It's really too bad. I mean, this should be meaningful, but it just doesn't add up to anything. I mean, like I said... What is this movie supposed to be about? I don't care about the Carol-Bobby relationship. And there's no emotion in this Ted-Molly scene. Um, I'm sorry, or, or Bobby-Molly scene. I guess an outsider coming in to heal the child, just like Ted has done, um, kind of makes sense. But whatever, it's flimsy. It, when he tells her that Carol had the heart of a lion, no, it rings false. Nothing about her performance conveyed that. Nothing. And then David Morris narrates over young Bobby riding his bike. Boom. The movie's over. Smartly, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes starts playing. And um, I would rather have done a podcast reviewing how this is probably the most beautiful song ever recorded. Um, and whenever I hear the song, I, I just, I always immediately think of the 1990s, uh, Richard Dreyfuss ghost story. Always. I don't know if you have ever seen that movie. Um, I don't know if it's actually good or not. Uh, did Spielberg do it? Did Steven, did Steven Spielberg direct it or just producer? I, I, I don't know, but it's, who is it? It's, 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 uh, Richard Dreyfuss and it's John Goodman and, and Holly Hunter. And, um... What Richard Dreyfus is a hotshot pilot uh, who puts out forest fires and he dies and he and Holly Hunter are in love and then his ghost helps her to move on. And I remember it being very, very sweet and poignant. I don't think that it, it probably doesn't hold up. And it, it was Spielberg. Spielberg did direct it. But anyway, this song is the, the emotional core of that movie. And so whenever I think of Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, I, uh, I always think of that movie. And you know what? I, I, pro I would have rather have watched Always, even if Always is not as good as I remember it, than ha have to, uh, to watch uh, Hearts in Atlantis because this, this movie kind of 
kind of sucks. Anyway, um, specifically about this movie, I mean, like I said, it just it focuses on the 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 relationship between um, Anthony Hopkins and 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 Bobby, you know, and but the movie isn't. It, it just doesn't know. It doesn't. You know. I mean, clearly, Anthony Hopkins is the draw. So you want to have this be a father and son relationship. But the movie focuses on uh, Bobby and Carol. So nothing about it lines up. Nothing about it ever really seems to work. Um, just, just kind of a mess. It's kind of a mess. Anyway, so let's talk just very, very quickly about Ted movie versus Ted book. I guess my question is, is Anthony Hopkins too academic for this role? I mean, I know that he has always had a scholarly, intellectual, erudite quality about him. Um, but there's something about Ted from the book that kind of has some rough around his edges that Anthony Hopkins just doesn't have. With Anthony Hopkins, there's just something up and up about him. You know, I just wonder what it would have been uh, like uh, if you had cast someone a little bit more... I don't know, not not necessarily like, you know, I, I would if I'm going to consider Anthony Hopkins black and white, he's just he's good. He's a good man. What about someone that was a little more gray shaded um, like a John Slattery? I don't know why he's coming to mind. I think that I also <laughs> recommended John Slattery for the role of um, Leland Gaunt in in uh, Needful Things as well. But I mean, you know, what what if John Slattery, you know, I mean, there, there's something you know, about John Slattery that, that, you know, he can kind of pull a, uh, kind of an arrogant haughtiness to him that, um, whereas Anthony Hopkins always seems sincere. I, I think that John Slattery could kind of bring a, a little bit of, um, interesting flavor to it. Anyway, uh, David Morris also would have made for a great Ted Brodigan. And this isn't to say that Anthony Hopkins isn't good because Anthony Hopkins is great and he's clearly the highlight of this movie. Um, but I would say that between the movie and the book, I mean, it's Ted the book, Ted Brodigan the book all the way, um, which is too bad because I wish that this movie was better for Anthony Hopkins to do more um, than he did here and he did everything he possibly could i mean like i said the scene where he is just talking about the the game is incredible and he has these great moments where he's well on paper he's interacting with the children but really he's just monologuing because the the kids can't keep up with him i mean clearly it's anthony hopkins but uh yeah the movie's not good the movie's not good go with the book 100 uh and it's it's really too bad Okay, guys, so that's all I have for Hearts in Atlantis, both the movie and the novella collection. But the next episode, make sure that you you come back for because I will be reviewing Dreamcatcher. Dreamcatcher. This is one that I both could not wait to get to and also was dreading the entire time. Dreamcatcher, Stephen King's story about alien invasions and his truly memorable for all of the wrong reasons character of Duddits. So everybody, uh, may you have long days and pleasant nights and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.